Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Broadcasting live from the Hyundai Studio, presented by your local Hyundai dealers. This is Chicago's number one and most listened to sports station. 670 The Score is Chicago Sports. Chicago Sports is The Score. WSCR and HD Chicago. WBMX HD2 Chicago. And Odyssey Station. The Score! In the air, right field, pretty well struck. Stanton going back at the track, and this ball is off the wall, back into play, and Harrison has an RBI double to make it 6-5 to five here in the sixth inning, and here come the Sox again. Oh, they got close. They got close, but couldn't quite finish it. White Sox with a doubleheader. It's a weird timing on the doubleheader today. First game starts... Is it 3 o'clock Eastern, like 3.15 or 3.10, one of those, you know, 3.08? I don't know what the hell they're doing. But what's weird about it is the second game is the national game, the Sunday night game, and so that has to start at 7.08 Eastern time. So they're allowing themselves less than four hours to finish the first game and turn around. Now, um, Sean Putnam, see if you can find average time for an American League ball game these days. And while you're at it, take a look at average, take how long the game was yesterday for Yankees and, and, and White Sox. Um, why wouldn't they start that a little earlier? Here's what I do know. Here's why they didn't do the doubleheader yesterday. There was a big charity event last night. I heard Len Casper talking about it. There was a big charity event last night at Yankee Stadium, long scheduled, so they couldn't do a day-night doubleheader or try to do the twin bill, the straight twin bill during the day because they needed to get the ballpark ready for stuff. And maybe they needed this morning to kind of recover from the charity event last night and clean it up. I mean, if they had stuff going on on the field, on a tarp or what have you, and then they got to clean up all the chairs and the catering and everything like that this morning to get ready for a ball game, I could imagine that being the case. So yesterday's game went three hours and 40 minutes. The average, yeah, right. They're kind of close. Um, and then the average time, at least according to 2021, was three hours and 15 minutes. So they're really. Okay, so that's average time for 2021. Um, you keep looking, see if you can find 2022. That would be instructive as sure. well, of course. But three hours, 40 minutes for yesterday, and that's not extra innings. And uh, that would not mean that Espen starts on time tonight. Whew. I'm picturing Ravitch and Cone and those guys filling time. And God help us, A-Rod and Michael K. Three hours and seven minutes for 2022 so far. Look at that. So down eight minutes on average from last year. So they Pitch clock eat your heart out, huh? Yeah, yeah. Oh, pitch clock's coming, baby. 
It's coming. Um, want to tell you why we love baseball. Got a couple nuggets for that in a moment. But some folks called up to talk about the credit card thing that I was um, ranting mildly about last hour. This is Scott in Long Grove on the score. Good morning, Scott. How are you? Good morning, Matt. How are you? Very good. Everybody asks that. <laughs> anyway, um, it was great to talk to Ruben. He's doing a great job, just like the previous caller said. That's awesome. Um, maybe... Maybe that maybe that question might be something you bring to Crane Kenny because he would probably be one of the few people that could truly tell you why. Yeah. So being a former restaurant owner, um, almost all businesses uh, that accept gratuities such as restaurants and bars and salons and and things like that, the 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 owner of the business pays a percentage of the total sale, regardless of it's just if they're selling goods or services. They also pay the percentage on the tip. And that can range anywhere, say, from uh, 1.5% to as much as 3%. And added up over the course of a year, that adds up to tens and thousands of dollars in some mm-hmm. cases. So, um, And maybe some of those places that don't accept it, maybe those are kiosk places that are set in there. Um, maybe it's Maker's Mark that is sponsoring that kiosk for uh-huh, that day. Uh-huh. They send somebody out there with, you know, with, with the product. They're paid a flat rate plus a commission on that. And no matter how much they sell, they get a little bit of that uh, on a commission rate. That way, um, it, it kind of helps eliminate uh, over tipping. Um, and, you know, maybe there's, there's some... Um, other reason behind it other than that i can't really think of anything but that might be something to to consider as well that's might be part of the reason all right thank you scott yeah eliminate over tipping what's wrong with the over tipping if somebody's toasty and feeling it and in a good flow maybe christopher morell just homered you know i don't know if people want to tip so weird. Steve is on the north side and is now on the score. Good morning, Steve. Hey, uh, real quick. You always got to carry cash in your pocket. You always have to carry cash. Oh, man, I don't like it. I don't like it. I, I'm ready for a world where I don't. And you're telling me I can't live there? No, you can't. And uh. if you're looking for a guest speaker, I would invite Scotty Pippen on. <laughs> on have the, a good one. On this topic. Thank you. Yeah. Scotty, uh, I'm really concerned with my ability to be a well-intentioned tipper at a ball game. Your thoughts. Sat behind Scotty at a Cubs game one time, and I thought about following him and seeing if he bought beers and, and if he tipped. What a terrible legacy. What a horrendous legacy to be known as no tipping pippin. That's unfortunate. I, I, I don't know if he still lives that way. I don't know the answer to that. Um, 312-644-6767 is uh, how you can text and also how you can call. All right, some reasons that we love the game. We already mentioned it one time. The two debuts this week, great for the Cubs. Great to hear Brandon Hughes yesterday on Inside the Clubhouse talking about the emotions and the feelings with his debut. Fun interview with uh, David Haw. And with Bruce Levine, of course, yesterday and inside the clubhouse. Um, and if, if you have not been able to feel the electricity of young Christopher Morell, then something is, is wrong with your blood circulation. And the 3-2. Swing and a drive. Deep left field. It's got a chance. Go! 
Welcome to the Chicago Cubs, Christopher Morrell. He missed first base. He goes back and steps on it. What a moment. Can you believe it? Right? It's just one of them nights here at the Friendly Confines. Oh, my God. It, it was just so much fun. And there's so many different ways to look at it, different angles. People shot some home video. Bleacher Nation, I thought, did a great job of consolidating all the different, like, cell phone camera angles that people had tweeted of it. It was really cool. And I'm getting chills just thinking about it. I mean, that's the stuff, you know? Especially when your team that you've been watching or the team that you're playing on is mired in some mediocrity or, you know, um, having some issues and they've got – Uh, uncomfortable things to think about and deal with on a day-to-day basis. You bring up a wide-eyed kid making his big league debut, and he says he wants to homer in his first at-bat just like Contreras did, and then he does, and he just hugged everybody on his way off the field, hugging everybody, and apparently that's normal. Here's Brandon Hughes, who talked about his story as the pitcher who came up and struck out five guys, including four in a row. Here's Brandon Hughes yesterday inside the clubhouse talking about Christopher Morrell. Morel is he's something else he's electric I mean he plays the game with a level of passion that you don't really I mean you do see it every day but it, he just takes it to a whole nother level and you see that excitement in his in his face and the way he moves and I mean I can't pass that guy in the locker room without getting a hug from him and he just comes up to me and, and pretty much everybody he'll go up and just hug everybody that's, that's awesome is that awesome Apparently, he hugged Bruce Levine the other day. <laughs> I haven't hugged Bruce Levine. You did? No, I haven't. You haven't? No. I want to get in on it. I'm jealous of that. Well, you know, apparently Bruce is an accepting hugger. That's good to know. Yeah, I know Rizzo got a hug from him, too, didn't he? Uh, I think so. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, Rizzo's hug of Paul Sullivan. I mean, we did a whole segment oh, on we it. Did, yeah, we brought him on. <laughs> we literally did 12 minutes on the Rizzo hug of Paul Sullivan. Maybe not 12. Maybe it was only like eight minutes. Of a 15-minute interview. But, uh, yeah, Bruce had said yesterday that Morell hugged him. It was the second time he saw him. First time he saw him, got introduced. Very nice. Second time he saw him, hug. I love that. <laughs> I love that. That's so awesome. Oh, Cubs man. need a guy like that. Every team needs guys like that. Every team. And, you know, somebody who's just so damn excited to be there. And I don't know whether Morell sticks long-term. He's got a very long swing. But, boy, it's a fast swing. It is incredible bat speed. And tell you what, the other day when they just needed a single and a base runner uh, in the Fergie Friday game as they were trying to rally, he delivered a single then and was super psyched about it, knowing that that was just fine. He has showed uh, speed and efficient routes in center field. He's played second base. He's played third base. You know, um, he's 22 years old. Power kind of has been coming together. So, look, just a lot of fun to see Christopher Morell this week and have that, um, have that energy as an infusion into, into your ball club or that ball club. Um, another item, another couple items. In fact, I've got three more items. Why we love baseball from this week. This play caught producer Sean Sears' eye. 1-1 to Eli White, and that ball smashed into left field. That's a base hit. Another one is in. Uh-oh, that's a whole lot of trouble. And with wide speed, I think you can go ahead and count it. Here he comes inside the park.
inside the park for Eli White. What'd you love about it, Sean? Oh my gosh. I love that he, you knew as soon as that ball got down, Eli White was thinking, I'm going triple. And then as soon as he saw that ball pass the right fielder, he's like, yeah, it's a home run. And the broadcast called it before he even rounded third. It was just one of those games where like, it reminded me of maybe being 13 and hitting a ball with no fence and just watching that ball roll forever. It was uh, it just one of those things that, you know, you just don't see that anymore. You don't get to have those opportunities anymore yeah. as an adult. Uh, as an inside the Parker last night, Brian Reynolds of the Pirates hit right. one, and it went off the outfield wall and caromed in an odd way. That was an intense one last night because Reynolds, he watched the ball because he thought it was a home run, so he watches for a step or two and still at an inside the Parker standing up. That's impressive. Standing up. Just just crazy. No, so that was fun, and, and, and that's always – a fun play. Um, it's a lot not of inside the park home runs this year. Yeah, weirdly. I, I don't know. You know, I guess there have been Dalton Var shows yesterday does not count as an inside the no, park home run. That's, that's what a double in two errors, exactly d- a double in one, a double in an advance, and then and then one error. Right. Uh, and just, I know uh, Brandon Crawford had one where he hit a triple and then bounced out of bounds and got the run scored. Right. Right. But a nice, clean, true inside the park is an amazing thing. That's for sure. Um, I loved this story this week when Trevor Story. Hit, um, was it the Grand Slam or was it the last of his home runs? No, it was the Grand Slam. Um, it, it, Trevor Story, homer. No, I guess it was the next night because he, he, he had a Grand Slam and a two-run homer and another double for an RBI and a four-hit game at Fenway. The next night he homered again. And did you see who caught the home run out there over the monster seats? It was Johnny Gomes of the Red Sox, the former player who happened to be sitting in the monster seats, and he didn't catch it directly. Off a carom, the home run came to him, and he picked it up, and he like lifted his shirt up because he's a wackadoodle, and there were four beers in front of him that he'd been having, so good for him. But Johnny Gomes's quote after that game, he was so psyched. Because Johnny Gomes in 2013 – played 93 games as a left fielder at Fenway Park. Gomes, so was a left fielder, and then he caught the Trevor Story Grand Slam while sitting in the monster seats. Gomes said, quote, so I'm officially the only guy to play both sides of the wall. Fact. An absolute fact. Think about it. I think he's the only guy to play both sides of that wall. It's not like Ted... Williams or Carl Yastrzemski or Jim Rice or Mike Greenwell or Manny Ramirez ever played the other side of the wall and caught a home run on the other side of the wall. I think that's a hilarious quote and really cool. And a reminder, by the way, that between 1939 and 1987, 1987, so that's 48 years, uh, the Red Sox had three regular left fielders. That's insane that he caught that ball. Yeah, isn't it? But think about it, Ted, Carl, and Jim Rice, over the course of 48 years, just three guys as your predominant left fielders. And then, look, here's a big reason why I love the game, and I'm sure some of you do as well. The late Roger Angel, who died on Friday at the age of 101, is just a beautiful, beautiful baseball writer, was a beautiful baseball writer. Um, Seek out his essays. He wrote for The New Yorker for years. Ended up as the fiction editor for The New Yorker, which is pretty amazing considering his mother was also the fiction editor for The New Yorker. His, his mother was the original fiction editor. His stepfather was E.B. White, who wrote Stuart Little and Charlotte's Web. So this is an important part of what made Roger Angel great. Roger Angel 
was a curious writer and thinker who discovered baseball at the age of 42. 42, he was assigned baseball by the New Yorker, assigned to go to Florida spring training, and he wrote a piece which uh, became called The Old Folks Behind Home. The Old Folks Behind Home, I think it's called. Old Folks Behind the Plate? No, I think it's called The Old Folks Behind Home. And it's about spring training fans in Florida who just go. And he was kind of smitten by their passion for it at age 42. And he then wrote about baseball for the next 56 years, did Roger Angel. So he was a curious, thoughtful writer who found baseball in middle age and then wrote about it for 50 years. And he would write about fandom, our caller Ben um, in the first hour, uh, reference some of those incredible quotes about fandom and why we care about baseball. And it's really why we care about sports at all. And it was beautifully, beautifully written. And you can seek that out. But he also wrote better than anyone, in my opinion, about the physical ballet of the game. He wrote about the kind of things that I always try to notice, the things that are always available to notice during a game. If you can slow down and watch how the players and really everybody involved goes about it and why it kind of speaks to us on sort of a deeper, physical, visceral level sometime. Seek out what he wrote about Bob Gibson. There's a beautiful long essay about Gibson, which is all worth reading, but he writes about how Gibson used to pitch. And if you can picture it, how the great Bob Gibson would throw every pitch, this is just a little snippet of it. Roger Angel wrote, The pitch shot across the plate with a notable amount of right-to-left action, and his catchers sometimes gave the curious impression that they were cutting off a ball that was headed on a much longer journey, a 100-foot fastball. But with Gibson pitching, you were always a little distracted from the plate and the batter because his delivery continued so extravagantly after the ball was released that you almost felt that the pitch was incidental to the whole affair. God, I just love that. Like you just, there was just ballet and watching Gibson do his thing. And oh yeah, by the way, there's the pitch happening over there, but it's the whole thing. Just, um, I, I, I love the inspiration that baseball is for writers of all kinds and all stripes. And this particular guy was not a beat writer who evolved into columnist. Um, he was a writer who found his way to the game. So seek out Roger Angel with two L's if you have not. And, um, RIP to an absolute, absolute legend. Justin Steele's going to join us later on. Hopefully Doug Glanville sometime in the next hour. And Chris Kamko, the Sultan of Stat from NBC Sports Chicago with nuggets on both sides of town is next here on Hit and Run. like to be cam connected just makes me feel that delightful feeling of cam connectivity you know um i sometimes i dance the cam can but just in general i like welcoming chris Kamka, the sultan of stat from nbc sports chicago to the score he joins us on the circa resort and casino hotline circa resort and casino las vegas home of the world's largest sports book chris I just I just feel like you understand the game on so many delightful levels, and you increase my enjoyment of it. So thanks for that. How are you? Well, th- well, thank you. Geez, if that's a list of things I've never heard before, if I have never heard one of those, <laughs> very nice. I enjoyed it. Yeah, man. And so uh, one hour from now, 
going to talk to Justin Steele uh, of the Cubs. And I saw this stat last week, uh, Chris, and I think it probably connects to something you want to talk about. He is the first Cubs draftee to strike out at least 10 people in a start since Jeff Samarja in 2014. Justin. Yeah, and I do want to talk about that because that's amazing. Um, so he did that last Sunday. Yeah. And you have to go 50 10 strikeout starts more until you get to Jeff Samarja. Um, May 26, 2014. And I mean, they're both fifth round picks. Um, and then, and then if you go even further back through the end of two, back to 2006, you have 100 10 strikeout starts by Cub pitchers. Wow. 19 of them are by Cubs drafted or international free agent. And it's just, you know, to see Justin Steele break through and do it, it's pretty amazing because it's just always been the bugaboo of recent Cubs seasons. They just can't quite get the pitching uh, homegrown. Um, so if you go back through 2006, the Cubs have as many pitchers that they drafted get 10 strikeouts in the game. Now, drafted, so I'm gonna not going to include Carlos Zambrano, who's the guy in the international um, free agent pick. Mm-hmm. Justin Steele, Jeff Samarja, then you go back to Randy Wells, who was drafted by the Cubs, then the Blue Jays picked him by uh, Rule 5, and then the Cubs got him back. But I still count that. And Rich Hill. So those are the four guys that they drafted um, since 2006 to record a 10-strikeout game for the Cubs. That's as many as they've had guys drafted by the Texas Rangers get 10-strikeout <laughs> games for the Cubs. All right, hold on, hold on. Let, let, let me yeah. see if I can guess those because they, they've traded a lot. Um, well, one of those is Kyle Hendricks, obviously. That's correct. Um, correct. Boy, Good luck. Uh, <laughs> um. No, yeah. Uh, Dempster wasn't drafted by the Rangers. Yes, he was. Was he? Yes, he he was. Look at that. That's that's two. All right. Uh, Dempster and Hendricks, two guys drafted by the Rangers, have gotten a 10-strikeout game for the Cubs. Neil Ramirez? No, he was in the bullpen. No. Uh, All right, who else? Scott Feldman. Okay, of course. And and the guy who did it once, but in his major league debut. Does Does that help you? Uh, he struck out 10 only one time in his life, but in his major league day. Juan Cruz. Thomas Diamond. Do you remember that name? Oh, wow. Wow. That's crazy. So they've had only four homegrown pitchers strike out 10? Drafted. Yeah, drafted. I mean, because you can, you can always include Carlos Zambrano there. But sure. since 2006, there's been four pitchers drafted by the Cubs to do it and four pitchers drafted by the Rangers to do it for the Cubs. That's amazing. Do you have those Cubs? Do you have the four Cubs? Well, yeah, it's um, Rich Hill, Randy Wells, Jeff Samarja, and Justin Steele. Yeah, you told me that. I should have been listening a little more closely. Um, But thank you. No, that's amazing. That's, you know, and obviously it's something we could look at with some other franchises, but this is a massive key to what Jed Hoyer is trying to do is seeing if they can actually um, draft develop and deliver their own people instead of having to go spend desperately on pitching from other sources around the league. And I'll also say, I bet you it's not a problem exclusive to the Cubs, not by a long shot. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a very, it's a very difficult thing. Well, that's fascinating. That's good stuff. I didn't mean to steal the stat. I gave it out before you could even give it out, but that's exactly where you wanted to go. 
I figured you might, so I had to include a little few other notes surrounding that one. Yeah, you did. That's awesome. Well, I'll, I'll ask Justin Steele about uh, about that, among other things, uh, in an hour. Um, what you got on the other side of town, sir? So Luis Robert just hit his 30th career home run a few days ago, and he came in his 154th career major league game. You know, 154 isn't a huge number now. It used to be the amount of games in the season for Major League Baseball. So let's see how many guys had 30 or more homers and let's throw in 20 or more steals in their first 154 career MLB games since 1901. Okay, hold on. That That's a that's a, obviously a very interesting number. It happens to be the number where Robert reached those plateaus. But as we know, of course, that used to be a full season. And uh, 154. And uh, these days, a lot of really good players who play all the time will still only play like 154. So it's a, it, it's a full season to think about. Yeah, and it's crazy because it seems like Robert's been here for a while. He hasn't even reached that 162 yet, yeah. which is a full season today. He's, just, he's still getting started. But that list is nine players long since 1901. To get 30 or more homers and 20 or more steals in their first 154 career MLB games. All right, give that, I'll, I'll, give, I'll, give, I'll, give that to me again. Give that to me again. Okay. How many? Since 1901. Yes. Nine players in their first 154 MLB games. Yes. 30 homers or more, 20 steals or more. Okay. I will say six of them are active. Six of them are active. Um, Mike Trout. Yes. Fernando Tatis. Yes. Uh, Juan Soto? No. Okay. I think he's far short on the steals. Far short on the steals. It was a, a I, bad I guess. I would guess without looking at, yeah. A bad, bad guess by me. Um, nah, not Albert Pujols. No, not Pujols, uh, although he stole a base at yeah. age 42. I know, but he stole some others uh, earlier on, but that's another, n- another bad guess by me. Uh, Carlos Correa. Yes. Uh, so you got three that- Three, I mean, four of the six, because Robert's obviously one of them. Right. Four of the six active. These are very fast. And how about Bo Bichette? Yes. Oh, yeah, he's terrific. Um, and the last one, I think you should be able to get it. Okay. Um, hmm. uh, Raphael Devers? No. No. Um, hmm. G- give me a team. Atlanta. Oh, of course, Ronald Acuna Jr. Damn it, I should have had that for you. There you go. Yeah. But here's the here's the here's the great. Do you know the first guy since 1901 to do this was? And I will give you all day to guess, and you'll never do it. <laughs> I, I have other things to all do right? on the radio show. So yeah. he's a former Cub, and he started his major league cur- debut for the Giants. Former Cub started for the Giants. Bobby Mercer. Dave. Kingman. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I don't think of Kingman as having 20 steals. But No, not at all. Yeah, but it makes sense. Uh, the other two are Daryl Strawberry and Chris Young. Wow. Chris Young, a former White Sox, now a Apple TV broadcaster who did that with Arizona when he came up, right? Correct. Wow. Correct. That, that's great stuff. That's, that's rarefied air for Luis Robert, and it feels right. Good stuff, Chris Kamka. Thank you, Speaks. All right, buddy. You're the best. Enjoy your day. All right, you too. All right, we'll talk to you. That's Chris Kampka from NBC Sportsnet Chicago. Doug Glanville is going to join us next right here on 670 The Score. Hit and run with Matt Spiegel, Sunday mornings on The Score. All of the interviews said that he's a new Jackie Robinson in baseball. He's going to bring back fun. 
for the game, right? And 2019, when I played for Atlanta, we actually joked about that on the game. Um, I don't know what's changed from, and I've said it to him uh, in years past, not not in any manner than just joking around for the fact that he called himself Jackie Robinson. If something has changed uh, from that, like my meaning of that is not any term uh, trying to be racist by any fact of the matter. Um, it was just off of an interview that what he called himself. That is Josh Donaldson after the Yankees-White Sox game yesterday uh, trying to explain why he called Tim Anderson Jackie and what he meant and did not mean by it. This is Matt Spiegel on Hit and Run on 670 The Score. I talked a lot about this the first segment of the show because it demands full context. Um, it, it demands like understanding who Donaldson is, what his past is, what his role as an agitator has always been. Um, how that Tim Anderson quote was taken out of context and widely distributed when it was part of a much longer uh, and more in-depth interview um, and, and, and why it might have been felt that way and then why Tim Anderson's teammates and manager chose to have his back during and after the game in defense of Tim and going up against Josh Donaldson. Uh, it's it's interesting, and there's nobody I like talking to more about interesting and thoughtful stuff in baseball, certainly when it comes to like the undercurrent of some of these these situations that, that tend to apply, than our friend Doug Glanville from Marquee and from ESPN Sunday Night Radio um, and so much more. Doug Glanville joins us right now on the Circa Resort and Casino Hotline. Circa Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, home of the world's largest sports book. Doug, good morning. Thanks for coming on, man. How are you? Not doing really well. Appreciate you having me. Uh, good. How did my call screener do over there? Uh, the 10 <laughs> year old Ruben Spiegel learning some communication skills. Hope he wasn't. Too yeah. Bad. Well, I found a common element. I have a 10 year old daughter, and um, I talked about Roblox, playing Roblox, <laughs> and I think we connected after that. <laughs> That's a great way in. Recommend Roblox as a conversational way into any 10 year old. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all, all good. Um, all right, Doug. So, like, I've already gotten a lot of uh, blowback and a lot of response from people saying, "What's so wrong with calling him Jackie when he called him that before?" Um, or, "What's so wrong with saying it as as a joke?" I mean, why why is that inherently racist? Just give some context from your perspective on on Josh Donaldson doing that when when he's an agitator and when he's definitely trying to poke at Tim Anderson. Yeah, no, Matt, I, I appreciate you digging deeper. And like you said, it, it deserves a lot of context and a lot of conversations. And, and we're going to learn more. That's the thing. And, you know, we have to be patient with it. I'm, I'm enthusiastic about the opportunity. That is the chance to learn more from, you know, this experience and understand the many perspectives. And, uh, and I think one way, like in my own experience, it goes is there's many times growing up and even later in life that, I was always referred to as, you know, whatever, Eddie Murphy or whoever, some comedian, some black entertainer or star. And there was times it felt like it was to make me more palatable, right? There was a sense of a, a diminished ability for me to control my own name and to be in the space. And sure, there's times where, yeah, you happen to look like someone. That's, that's fine. That could be part of it. But I started to wonder after, you know, we're talking years why I, I couldn't sort of be in my own name and why that, that was so important. And some of that made me think about 
Well, I guess if your association with a, a group of people and seeing them as sort of monolithic, whether intentional or not, that you see them in this sort of one framework, and a lot of which certainly had been negative around you know, the black experience, then then that's where this frustration could come from because I felt like, well, you know, why can't I be, uh, you know, myself, so to speak? And and look, any, any of these players probably in major leagues today as well have had experiences where they were either a the only black player or the first black player. Uh, one of those, you know, so you talk about Jackie Robinson being a pioneer. Well, many players came after Jackie that were first in other environments. And there's Jackie Robinson's quote unquote under many new environments, whether executives or Supreme Court justices or whatever it is. So we're still having first in experiences. And the the sort of what happens with those experiences is that you end up pioneering in environments that sometimes you don't exactly have a, the best experience. And I can give you a number of examples of that. But one uh, one that comes to mind is playing on the Team USA for New Jersey against Japan and hosting a Japanese players. And one of my teammates on my team, wearing Team USA, asked me, what is it about your people? And he was white and I was black, obviously. I'm black. And he asked me, what is it about your people that make you so inherently lazy? That was his direct question. <laughs> right? So, right. So now there's an opportunity there to, okay, obviously he hasn't had a lot of exposure. So let's talk about this. And even at 15, 16 years old, I still saw an opportunity. I, mean, I saw that he might not have tried to be completely nefarious, but it was just reflecting where he was coming from and his, his desire maybe to understand more. And, and so, you know, so what the thing about, all right, calling someone Jackie, and, and even if, all right, Tim, Tim Anderson, like self-proclaiming himself, Jackie Robinson is a little bit, I, from what I at least read, seemed sort of exaggerated. It seemed like the context of it was much more, uh, you could read into more than just like, I'm Jackie, the player. It's also Jackie, the experience that I just described being first and, and being alone. Yes. I mean, I went to college at an Ivy League school mm-hmm. where my first practice, first month of practice inside our indoor gym in the fall, I had a teammate that was draped in the Confederate flag. And once again, I was the only, at the time, I was the only black player on the travel team. So here I am alone trying to explain and ask this guy, well, why are you wearing a Confederate flag at mm. practice? Mm. And he just said pride in the South. And so when you're alone and, and you're the only one who's feeling a certain way about something, it's very difficult to feel like you have allies, you know, where, and so, so yes, it's, it's more than just like calling someone Jackie Robinson. And once again, I don't know everything that's in Josh Donaldson's head. I'm just trying to help uh, unpack that, why there could be more feeling behind right. what seems like what, you know, in some circles could be a compliment. I, th- I think you, you touched on something that, that really, that I need help with. And I think a lot of people need help with, which is, and you, you said some of it there when Tim references Jackie Robinson as like, you know, I'm kind of the Jackie Robinson now that I remember because I read the article, the full article, he's talking about how he's all about change the game, make it fun. Don't worry about a bat flip. I'm going to be myself. I'm going to be like the full black Tim Anderson experience in terms of, mm-hmm. right. In terms of being bubbly right. and energetic and passionate. And I don't mean to disrespect to you. That's just me. That's just how I roll. And the white Sox embrace that and encourage that MLB embrace that and encourage that. So that's the context with which he's talking about. When some people hear it, it's like, if, I think there are definitely some white people who hear it and say, how dare you associate yourself with Jackie? But what you're saying is that from a black person's perspective, 
there's some of that too, but you can understand. Like, like what is Tim feeling when he associates himself with Jackie in that way? Well, I, you know, I think, you know, you mentioned like the how dare. I think what's important to understand is if, if you're black, let's just say in baseball, but I, I put this across the board, you're in, you're in a lot of environments where you are, you feel like the feeling of Jackie Robinson and his experience isn't just because like, wow, he did this amazing thing and pioneered and break into baseball. It's that it's a feeling you have and relate to already. You don't have to be Jackie Robinson to understand what Jackie Robinson felt. I think that's the, the point. Like you don't have to be Jackie Robinson. You could be the 40th man on a roster. You could be, you know, wherever a bus driver, you could be in any profession and know what that felt like. And, and doesn't matter that it was, 1947 or 2022 Uh, and you know i think that i think that's what needs to be underscored i mean i've written a number of examples of i was shoveling my driveway in front of my house when when the police stopped me and asked me if i was trying to make money and why i was out here in my own driveway right so so it's not you can have this experience and and know that you can relate and not necessarily say that oh it means i'm saying i'm the greatest player uh, you know, one of the greatest players of all time. And, and so I think that's where, where the connections are. I mean, Dick Allen played in Little Rock, Arkansas in double A many years after Jackie Robinson broke in, but he was still the first black player to do that and went through the Klan marching through downtown. And so, yes, that, that, that's still an experience that he tapped and felt like, quote, Jackie Robinson. He happened to be a great player on top of that. What, what, this, what this brings also to mind, Doug, and we're talking to Doug Glanville here on Hit and Run, is this idea of the fun police. Um, you know, and it, the fun police in baseball has historically been, even if it's the last 10, 20 years we're talking about, you know, kind of an older white guard of the game sort of, making sure that people don't express themselves too much and don't bring too much passion. And that's not just about blackness. That's been about Latin Americans and the passion which, which they play. And, and I think that that, that culture it has essentially won the game over. You know, and Josh Donaldson is a bat flipper. Josh Donaldson is a, is, is a passionate and expressive yep. player. So it's not just that. But this does have – am I wrong to feel those undertones in this? Is that just our experience around the game over these last 20 years? Well, no, you're not wrong. And, and we also have to recognize you know, where baseball began and where it is now. I mean, you know, when you have X amount of decades where only one group of people really were represented, and then that's where the cultural traditions come from. And so it is a, against the tide when people from Latin America and other places come and bring a new sensibility. And I, I have patience for the game. I, I, I love the game of baseball, and I have patience for it slowly adapting and learning how to embrace the fact that now the game is worldwide and all over, and people are represented from different backgrounds, and, and what the cultural growth that has to occur to embrace not just the players on the field, but all the fans, to, to be a game that opens its arm wider and say that we all have something to add to this game. I mean, Fernando Tatis Jr. is a very good example because when I was covering him early on and I played against his dad, I knew that I was like, well, this is different because I'm watching veteran players say this is good. I think that was a big moment to see the interviews we did on ESPN at one point of all these veteran players coming out and saying, no, I'm I'm celebrating Tatis Jr. I knew that was a big moment. And even in the negotiations for the labor agreement uh, after the lockout, you saw a lot of older players in general fighting for younger players 
and they, they're deserving to get more money earlier in their, their career. I think those were big moments to me to show that there's an old guard that's accepting the youth and the power of these young players of how they grow the game and, and excite people across any color, race, creed, background. And, and that's actually a, a positive thing. That's something. So, yes, you know, that is there's been a cultural components to it. I also look at how the game is you know, doing more to sort of celebrate that. I, I played winter ball in Puerto Rico for two years. And, you know, eventually we had like a salsa dance team. You know, had, I mean, there was a band in the stands. <laughs> I mean, so, you know, that was how we played in winter ball. And, and that, that was just the norm. And, and they were bringing the energy and, and, and true love and joy for the game. A couple more things for Doug Glanville on this topic. You're listening to 670, the score. Um, what does it say that Tony LaRussa is the manager for Tim Anderson and is passionately, vehemently uh, against Josh Donaldson, and he himself called it out as racist. It's not, it's not something I would have associated with Tony in the St. Louis days and in the extended Mike Matheny Cardinals days. Like that whole, the whole thing. I, I, it's, it, it, what does it say that Tony's there yeah. doing this? Well, when I, when I uh, you know, asked for you know, manager quotes for 800, I did not see Tony Russo behind there on this uh, at all. <laughs> so, um, look, I, it, it's interesting. I interviewed Tony Russo before the game yesterday because, as you know, I'm calling the, I was calling the game yesterday yeah. and today. Um, so I just happened to be there. And, you know, I was a little bit admittedly frustrated from uh, Tony Russo's quotes and comments about Colin Kaepernick in some context. But I've known I played against him forever. I know he's a you know legendary manager, and I thought it was important that I talked to him because I probably hadn't have a con- hadn't have a conversation with him. So I did. I interviewed him for the pregame, and I asked him about Tim Anderson, and he was he talked about Tim Anderson, quite frankly, like his son. I mean, he really loves what he brings to that team, and was wanted. And he and in the game, he you know stood out there and early and and just went went really quickly into concluding what he believed it to be. And I think that was a big change. You know, I'm not saying that, uh, I'm not saying that oh, it means all these things like, sure, there's a lot of history, but that, that was different. That was something that I was surprised at quite frankly. And, and it's created a lot of obviously controversy and conversation. And I hope that the game handles this with care and understand there's a lot to learn here and understand from a lot of different perspectives. So I didn't see that. I didn't see that coming. And, um, but I noticed that when I was watching the game or calling the game, I was, I couldn't understand. I didn't know what was happening, but I remember saying there's more to this Hmm. than we're seeing. I just, it just seemed way beyond like the, just sort of retaliation thing. There was something there. And and then when I learned more about the post game, I I understood it more. Yeah, uh, for sure. And you know, it's interesting on Tony. I, I remember saying and thinking that when he was going to come here with the White Sox, I had my reservations, obviously, about whether it was going to work. One of the things I said was he's going to have to be a coattail rider on the culture. Like this team had a culture already created and established, and he has been a coattail rider uh, on the culture. He's like he's allowed them, for the most part, other than a couple different items, he's allowed them to be themselves and supported that. So that that part is – And by the way, the first question I asked him was, what is it like in year two? And he talked about how important year two has been to finally like know the personnel. So that that's part of his evolution around just learning the personalities. And, you know, he, he embraces Tim Anderson, you know, fully. Mm. Um, and then last thing, 
I love what you said at the beginning, Doug, about how you're enthusiastic about the opportunity because I, I, as an optimist myself and someone who values the conversation and such, I, I want to feel that way, but there's times where I have to admit that I don't knowing everything I know about the history of Josh Donaldson and how much, you know, he's been disliked by a lot of different people and a lot of different teams and stuff. I have this feeling of like, well, that's just a bad guy, but you're enthusiastic about the opportunity here. And that includes him when he says he wants to talk to Tim or understand it better. We we should allow and encourage that. Right. We should, we should. And, and, And whether Donaldson or whoever comes around to certain points of view is, is not really the main thing. It's just about whatever, you know, there's millions of fans paying attention to this. And we have, you know, we have a very difficult climate because we take sound bites and we take this and we take that. And we have to have these strong 100,000% opinions that are dogmatic and not nuanced at all. And, and then we're right. And then we can't accept that new information comes in and we can't change that. I, I find that all very toxic and it, it takes away from the opportunity to, realize that with humility, we have to recognize we don't know everything. We, we have to, you know, be open. And most importantly, what I love about the opportunity in baseball in particular is the chance to walk in other people's shoes, like just the chance to say, okay, you know, we're teammates. I've had teammates from all over the world every year. And I had to figure out how, you know, how are we going to work together with all these different backgrounds and languages. And we found ways to just come together because the goal was, was so much greater than our own individuality even our own identity at various times, but we still can hold who we are as part of it to grow all of our minds in terms of learning from, from different people. And that that's really the opportunity to, that the game can lead. It's a game that is built on unity and coming together as a team for a goal. It's also a sport that cares about rules and, and like any other sport. And that if we don't uphold those rules fairly, we don't have a sport. I think that's a great example for a larger society, right? Yep. That we have rules that are supposed to apply and be neutral to everyone and fair to everyone. So that's the opportunity. And, and um, you know, I've always I've pitched baseball and, and the Players Alliance about having a, a chief academic officer. I teach a course at University of Connecticut on sport and society because I think you have these moments. It'd be great to go out and, and just learn from him and do like a small barnstorming tour and just talk about it. Hmm. I think you could do a whole lot of good by taking these lessons and trying to figure out how to make them for everyone and for all of us to have access to that to me is the opportunity. Uh, As always, that's very well said. And um, yeah, it's, it's a a lot of the reason to love the game and another thing to love about it. A lot of room during the course of a ball game for conversation. I'm sure you and Boog Shambi will uh, get to some interesting places tonight with uh, this as part of subtext (laughs) and backdrop of a ball game. Doug, thanks for the time. Enjoy yourself in New York. And uh, next time, more outfield technique and Hall & Oates conversation. (laughs) That's a deal. Thanks, Matt. All right, thanks, Doug. That's Doug Glanville joining us right here on The Score. It's Matt Spiegel with you here on Hit & Run. Justin Steele in 30 minutes. Back after this. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. 
Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.